You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So next week we'll uh, see all the William & Mary students back, I imagine. And uh, it's good to see all of you today. So when I was in college, um, I effectively partied my way out of college and was basically asked to leave college. Um, But while I was there, I was in a fraternity, which was part of the reason how I, that was part of the way I got myself partied out of college. And I met this guy, his name was Robert, and he and I became really good friends. Matter of fact, we were both uh, the two people in the fraternity who recruited other people into our uh, way of living. And as I got out of college, I had to work a job, so I started working at the corporate headquarters of Aflac, got recruited to sell insurance, then eventually got recruited into technology sales and landed um, as an executive at a financial advising firm where I was uh, managing people's money and as a stockbroker and then I uh, was uh, helping, looking to help open locations and that was my job. That's what I did. And I did not have a degree and I had a nice office and I was by the president of the firm and we had hundreds of millions of dollars of, of assets under management and I thought, you know, I probably should get a degree. And so I grew up knowing the Bible, um, obviously not in a meaningful way, but I could beat you at a Bible bowl and probably win a game of Jeopardy. Um, And as a result of that, I thought, well, why don't I just get a degree in Bible? That should be low-hanging fruit, you know, Uh, because I know the Bible. And so I decided to get a degree in Bible. And it wasn't because I loved the Lord or wanted to get a degree in Bible. It's because I just needed a degree to go on the wall of the office that I had at this investment firm. So I didn't look like an undergree guy managing millions of dollars. That was my intention, not noble. In doing so, my fraternity brother, Robert, his father had passed away, and he was a golf professional. He was a golfing pro at Callaway Gardens, and he ended up inheriting millions of dollars. And so my fraternity brother, Robert, called me and said, hey, you manage all my money. And I said, absolutely, that's my job. And in doing so, as I'm taking all these Bible classes, I'm starting to draw closer to Scripture and the story of God and understand a little bit more about faith and Um, my mind is opening up and my heart is opening up and my life is changing. And I started caring less about what my clients had in their portfolios and more about the life they lived. And I started noticing that my happiest clients were the clients with the least amount of money. They were the ones who were not calling me at 8 8 o'clock p.m. and 9 o'clock p.m. about the stock market that was already closed by four hours, right? And I also noticed that the ones that were happiest were Christ followers. That got my attention. It started keeping me up at night. So I started wondering. I started asking other preachers and pastors, man, how do you know when you're called in the ministry? Like, how do you know when you're supposed to be a pastor and preach? And they used to always tell me the same thing. It's almost like they all learned it in a class, and it wasn't the class I had taken. Um, but they would all say, if you can do anything else, do that. And I always thought, oh, that sounds cynical. Now I kind of know what they mean. Um, but I started realizing, what does this mean? That's pretty weak. That's a weak-minded comment, right? Like, I was all kind of judgy about it. Well, as my fraternity brother and I were talking, I would tell him about Jesus, and he was interested in Jesus, and we would talk about Jesus. In the office, we'd talk about Jesus. Over a Subway sandwich, we would talk about Jesus, constantly talking about Jesus, me and him. And finally, he said, I think I need Jesus. And so he said, would you baptize me? And I was like, yeah, that would be awesome. And so I baptized him. And that day, I knew there was nothing else I could do with my life. No, and here's the thing. I'll never forget what Robert said to me the day of his baptism. 
he looks at me, and we're sitting down, he's dried off, we're all in there, and he's like, so, um, I'm probably going to need to find some new friends. I was like, well, just some additional friends. He was like, yeah, man, but like, what do Christians do for fun? <laughs> and I was like, you know, I, I don't know. Like, I wasn't raised in a church tradition of fun. I mean, every time I went to a church thing, there was always a devotional that had to happen. I'm serious. Like, we all, like, even if, like, we, I, didn't, I grew up in a youth group with three people, right? Me and a girl that I had a crush on, which means she didn't like me, and my buddy. And, and so we grew up, and so we'd go, and it would be like a, like a pizza party. Like, woo pizza party. Like, sure enough, there's a devotional. Or like, hey, pool party. Couldn't, you know, but, but sure enough, there's a devotional. Like, everywhere I go, like, everywhere, there was always a devotional. And I'm, I'm pro-devotionals. But, like, everywhere, like, there was always this thing when Christians got together, it was like we always had to pray or sing a song. And I grew up in a tradition that didn't need instruments, so we'd be singing anywhere. would be like, three people in a room, we singing something. And that's just how it works. And that's, that was the way of life for me. And so when he asked me the question, what do you do for fun? I'm like, I don't know. It got me thinking. You know, it reminds me that our, that our faith is supposed to be about celebration too. And I started thinking through all the festivals of the Hebrew people and how every festival was a party. Seriously, it was a party. Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Tabernacles, all a party. Yes, they would pray and yes, they would read scripture. But yo, they would dance. Everybody say dance. dance. See, you said dance in church. They would dance. They would dance. And I'm not talking about middle school dancing. You know, like, you know, like I'm not talking about this thing. I'm talking about like dance. Dance. By the way, I danced better than that in middle school. I was more like, the, you know. But like, but like, that's like it was. It was dancing and it was partying and it was singing and it was celebrating and it was. That was a part of the life of the Hebrew people, and not just that. It was also a part of their calendar. So they had rhythmic parties. And by the way, not just that. They weren't one day parties. They weren't two day parties. They were seven day parties. And they partied and they celebrated and they remembered because they knew that Zephaniah would say words like, God longs to sing and dance over you. And they had a party-oriented faith where there was celebration. And I'm always reminded of that in Epiphany. Because during the Epiphany season, we're always brought to... This Sunday, we were supposed to be brought to the baptism of Jesus, but I've done that every year for 13 years. Next Sunday, we're brought to the wedding at Cana, and I have not done that once in 13 years. So I thought I would mess everything up for me and do the wedding of Cana today and the wedding of Cana next week. Because when you see Jesus, you see him in this story in John chapter 2 at a wedding. Now, you would think that the God of heaven and earth who's come to save the world from the reign of sin and death would have something better than new to attend a wedding celebration. That's our understandings of Jesus, this long-faced, you know, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white Jesus who walks around with a long face, you know, miserable at life, telling people what to do. It's depicted in the movies. I mean, outside of The Chosen, which is why I really like the series, Jesus isn't smiling and laughing very much in a lot of the depictions that we see. And he sure doesn't look happy in all the paintings. Or was he doing like, the, I don't know, like the thing, the, the, the hand sign, right? Like in all the paintings... That he's there, he doesn't look, there's not a lot of joy depicted in our faith. Even in the depictions that we have. And matter of fact, when you start talking about it too frivolously, it starts making us feel a little sacrilegious. Well, what I really appreciate about the story of the wedding at Cana 
He's just filled with a lot of things, sacrilege being one of them. The other is Jesus being at a party. And there's a lot of ways to talk about the wedding of Canaan. We'll simply, we'll certainly look at some of those ways. But when we come to this story and we see the Christ who would attend a wedding celebration, and we see a Jesus who is a man who laughs, who goes to parties, who enjoys good food and conversation in the company of his friends and family, as the Son of God who transforms lives and lives the day-to-day human experience to its fullest, that this Jesus isn't always about our preferences. He may fit inside our hearts, but he will not fit inside our preferences. And here he is at the wedding of Cana, providing us a glimpse into the character and nature of God. Now, before we go there, we have to remember one quick thing about John. John's gospel of the four gospel accounts written is the most philosophical gospel of all. And he actually uses a lot of Greek philosophy in the way he works out his theology, such as, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh. Word, logos. That's, a, that's inherently a Greek philosophical category. He also plays on the Hebrew creation story, right? In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, God used a Word to create all that was said. That's a whole, that's a whole sermon in itself. But what you see in John is John's all about signs and symbols, He's all about signs and symbols. And John is the only one who has the seven I am statements. John has the seven, arguably eight signs, and he calls them signs, right? So John uses a lot of what people smarter than me would call double entendre, right? Like John has a lot of dual meaning to what he's doing. And so John invites us to read slowly and carefully and methodically and I figured we'd spend two weeks looking at Cana to see what, what all might be there. So John chapter 2, where it's not going to be on the screen, so if you have your Bibles, please go there. John chapter 2, beginning verse 2. The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. Let me pause. Now, one of the things that I'm hoping you'll see is that if we believe the Scriptures is inspired, that the Holy Spirit worked through people to write this book, that there's nothing in the Scripture that's going to be inherently neglected. Like, we need to tend to pieces of the text, and we need to see. John wants us to know some things. He wants us to know that this is a village in Cana in Galilee. Cana is an insignificant kind of settlement. It has no story in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's just associated within Jesus' home region of Galilee. And if we remember anything about Jesus' story, we'll remember that Jesus is highly received and welcomed in the Galilean region, but he's highly rejected in the Judean region. So you have to keep that in mind as you move through the story. Not just that, Jesus' mother was there. John wants us to know that Mary, the mother of God incarnate, is there. And his disciples were there. But not just that they were there, but that they were invited to the celebration. Verse 3. The wine supply ran out during the festivities. So Jesus' mother told him they have no more wine. Now, pause. In the first century, Jewish weddings going on for as long as seven days 
would always include this food and drink. And what was an important part of the celebration was the beverage of choice for all festivals, which was wine. You could say mead. <laughs> but it was wine, right? It was wine. And it would be there. And if a family ran out of wine before the celebration was over, in that society, it would be considered a bad omen showing that the marriage may not make it. But more importantly than that, it was a profound social embarrassment. You need to plan for, establish plans for a seven-day party to be a good host. Because back then, living in an honor-shame culture where hospitality is a central pillar upon which morality even stands, if you're going to have the audacity to call us into your village from near and far, then you must take care of us, and we must have a good party. So Mary, Jesus' mama, sees that there is a bit of a problem, and she grasps the seriousness of this situation, and she tells Jesus, they are out of wine. And look at what Jesus says in verse 4. Dear woman, that's not our problem. Jesus replies, my time has not yet come. Verse 5, but his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, pause. I personally like the film series The Chosen. And I think of that episode in this story. When Mary comes to Jesus and says, they are out of wine. And Jesus looks at her and says, that's not our problem. My time has not yet come. And then Mary gives Jesus the mama look. <laughs> and then Jesus gives Mary the son look. And then Mary just is able to then look at the servants and say, do whatever he tells you. So however you interpret the exchange is fine. I think the Holy Spirit allows us to use our imagination. But what the text tells us is Mary hears what Jesus said, but then she turns around and looks at the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. That phrase, that phrase, do whatever he tells you. These words are probably some of the most hope-filled and yet disrupting words in the Christian scriptures. These words become in themselves a signpost for the Christ follower. Do whatever he tells you. Yes. And it's only fitting that Mary, that Mary would say these words because when she was very young, she did whatever God told her. These words, do whatever he tells you, are instructions for each of us to seek life at its source. Jesus, the creator of life, who knows best how life works, who knows best how purposefulness and abundance works, knows how life should move. And so Mary says, do whatever he tells you. And in John's gospel, do whatever he tells you is the essence of discipleship. So when you hear Jesus later say in his Sermon on the Mount, both in Matthew and Luke's account, love your enemies, 
do good to them, lend to them without expecting to be repaid. You must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. We're invited to hear Mary's words. Who says to us, do whatever he tells you. And so, the story goes in John chapter 2, verse 6. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Pause. It cannot be lost on us that at the outset of Jesus' ministry, his first act is one of religious sacrilege. He turns consecrated vessels into an open bar. (laughs) And I realize that some of us may have been taught growing up like I was that this wasn't like real wine. Y'all, let me just say to you, please, in the name of all that is good and lovely and just good Bible reading and good historical contextualization, it's legit. It's real wine. It ain't Mad Dog 20, but it's, and it ain't Strawberry Hill, but it is good wine. Kind of like Silverhand Meadery Mead. It is, it is there. See what I did there? It is good wine. I just want to be clear that it's, 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 it's the stuff. It is. It's the stuff. And Jesus takes these consecrated, set-aside, holy vessels and shows in his own way a flagrant disregard for this Judean ritual. And we're reminded, if we read it closely, we're reminded that the way of Jesus and his concerns for his kingdom and his concerns for others isn't always going to align with our definitions and categories of holiness. And it's so important to remember because some of us have views of holiness that isn't holy at all because it's exclusionary. And any holy thing that excludes people isn't holy at all. Even when it is done in the name of holiness. You want to know how I know? How I believe what I believe about this? Other than just the obvious nature of the fact that these are religious, ritualized, consecrated vessels of hospitality based upon religious commitments to law that is a tradition that is held because it's an interpretation. Besides that, Jesus has this tendency to do unholy things in the minds of those who are the authoritative voices of holiness, such as keeping company with tax collectors and sinners. You know what Jesus didn't do in the stories of the company of tax collectors and sinners? Give them a speech on morality and ethics and say, you can belong with me so long as y'all clean up. He didn't say, love the sinner and hate the sin. I don't even know what that means. Still, after all these years, I don't know what it means. But he didn't do that. You know what else he didn't do? He didn't see Sabbath as holy in the way that they thought holy Sabbaths were. You remember the time where he healed a man on Sabbath? Remember the time when the disciples were hungry and they're walking through a grain field and they needed something to eat and he let them pick grain on Sabbath? Remember how the authoritative voices of holiness looked at the disciples and essentially said, your rabbi isn't holy enough? It's there in the text. 
And for John, it's in the outset. But we'll talk more about that next week. The company that Jesus keeps and the actions Jesus takes broadens our understanding of what it means to be holy. And so, verse 7 of the text. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. Verse 9, when the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from. Now look at, listen to John's parenthetical comment. Listen to his comment in parentheses here. He says, though, of course, the servants knew. Now I want to pause. I need you to catch that. Just catch it. Nobody knows that God is at the wedding. Nobody. Not even the disciples yet. Nobody knows. And nobody of importance is invited to know first. The ones that Jesus enlists in this miraculous sign act of epiphany. The ones who know first is not the master of ceremonies. It's not even the bride and the groom. It's the lowly, hardworking servants. But we'll talk about that next week. Verse, verse 9 again. When the master ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though, of course, the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. You know, but it's not real wine. It's Welter's grape juice. But you have kept the best until nine, till now. Verse 11. This miraculous sign. That's what John calls it. At Cana, in Galilee, John, almost you remember where it is, was the first time Jesus revealed his glory. Amen. This is a story of epiphany. Yes. And it is amazing to think. And there is a lot, really, we could talk about, that could be said about this story. We could talk about how Jesus doesn't change a few small jars of water into wine, but he provides an abundance of the finest wine. He takes six jars, six large jars, which each hold 20 to 30 gallons of water and produces over 150 to 180 gallons of fine wine. Glenn tells me that would be 800 bottles. 800 bottles of wine. We could talk about how when Jesus does something, he doesn't just do enough, he does more than enough. We could talk about how he turns water from a well into living water. We could talk about how he takes five loaves and two fish and feeds over 5,000 people with 12 baskets of leftovers. We could even talk about how John wants us to remember that he said he's come to have life, that we could have life and life to its fullest. We could talk about abundance, but we won't today. We can talk about the quality found in abundance. We can talk about how Jesus isn't just about quantity, but Jesus is about 
quality. We could talk about how Jesus didn't just make more wine. Jesus made a high quality wine. We could talk about how he did more than what was enough, but he did it with quality. We could even talk about a story that John wants us to remember in John chapter 6, where Jesus has massive amounts of followers, like a mega church following, right? And then Jesus starts talking about the hard stuff of the gospel. He starts talking about things that starts naming things that becomes offensive, and how this massive crowd of followers decide to scatter and leave following Jesus, revealing that they were never really followers in the first place. They were only fans. And how the remaining group who were there, which was back to the OGs, the original 12, were the actual followers. And then we could talk about how Jesus didn't run, please come back, come back and follow me. I didn't mean it. Or let's have 17 meetings across tables to talk about how I offended you. He didn't do any of that. You know what he did? He let them go. And he turned to the followers that he had and said, are you leaving too? We could talk about that, but we won't today. We could talk about how we oftentimes settle for just good enough. How we have a tendency to settle for the minimum. How this quality of abundance is always available to us, but too many times we just settle. We'll talk about that next week too. Because what we have to talk about today is what I believe is actually the main point of the story. See, all the stuff that we'll talk about next week is what people like me are tempted to talk about the one time we talk about the story. Because it's low-hanging fruit. And it's good. And it's meaningful. And it's practical. But there's a deeper theological narrative unfolding before our eyes in the story of the wedding of Cana, especially coming from John. See, wine has a special place in the story of the Hebrew Scriptures. When you step back and you read the Hebrew narrative, you will find that the abundance of wine signifies Israelite hopes for the time when restoration and liberation will come to them. I could read an abundance of Scripture, but I'll just give you Amos chapter 9, verse 13. The time will come, says the Lord, when the grain and grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested. Then the terraced vineyards on the hills of Israel will drip with sweet wine. I will bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands and they will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them again. They will plant vineyards and gardens. They will eat their crops and drink their wine. So when you read the Hebrew Scriptures slowly, especially the prophets who constantly talk about the restoration of Israel and the liberation of Israel, it is not tied to a land as it is tied to a promise. That the king has come. See this sign. As John calls it. Points to something. 
bigger and is meant to provoke an epiphany that the act of the promised Messiah King turning water into an abundance of wine meets the prophecies that look forward to an abundance of wine at the time of Israel's restoration. The king is among you. The one you have waited for is here. And the first ones who get to know at this party are the lowly servants. Just like the lowly shepherds, just like the Gentiles who travel from far, just like a 15-year-old little girl from a lower middle-class family, because that is how God works, revealing himself to people who are the most unexpected ones in the room, coming from the most unexpected places. Sometimes people we would rather not even choose to be with because Jesus has this way of expanding our narrow definitions of holiness to this kind of inclusive way of being in the world. And see, by the time John writes this story, he knows from the experience of years that to believe in Jesus as the long-awaited and expected king is to live a life within a life. Mm. Here's what I mean by that. See, John knows that it's in the ordinary that the extraordinary can be found because Christ is among us. John knows that water turned into wine, that the word became flesh, that the old age is now passing away because the new age has broken in. John knows that we're standing on the edge of everything that has changed and is changing even though everything feels the same. He knows. And we know at least one part of this. We know that the old age is here. We feel it in the cancer. We feel it in the sickness. We feel it in the betrayals. We feel it in the bullets and the bombs flying across streets on high school campuses this week, our middle school campuses this week. We feel it in the 215 bodies that were hidden in Jackson, Mississippi. We feel it outside of a prison. We feel it. We feel it in the torrential rains that fall and send floods. We feel it in the hot spots of the world where people are starving and dying. We feel it. And so we think sometimes that that's... The world, that's the way it is. And John is trying to say, but you need to know epiphany has come. There's an epiphany for you. The epiphany for you is why you're doing all your comings and goings. Jesus is actually doing something new. But he may be using people you would not expect and doing something you might not even consider holy. Come on, Come on now. And we're just moving along. Never realizing. And we're strapped to it, boy. We're quoting Bible. Oh, we're drawing the lines. We're holding the table strong. And Jesus is using our consecrated vessels of holiness as an open bar. Trying to get us to see something bigger. Come on, talk about bread. Something new. Something possible in a world filled with improbable. 
And John is here trying to say that hour that had not yet come has now come. What will be is. And what seems to be is slowly becoming no more. It's what theologians have called for years the now and not yet reality of the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God is broken into now but not yet fully. The love and the fullness of God's life can be known now, but not yet fully. The way of justice is unfolding now, but not yet fully. The way of generosity is unfolding now, but not yet fully. This is the beauty of John's entire symbolic, sign-filled gospel. The wedding of Cana at the outset is an invitation to epiphany. For John's signs are the moment when heaven and earth intersect. They're the moments when heavenly reality becomes earthly reality. When the Jews believed that it, whatever it is, only happens in the temple, now it happens in a person. Jesus brings in his person this intersection between the human and the divine and says to us, heaven opens and the power of God's love that transforms has burst into the present. And a new reality has come into being because Christ the King is among us. Amen. <laughs> Mourning and sorrow can turn into dancing as joy can become full. Ashes can turn into beauty. As Isaiah said, as peace can settle the human mind and love can fill the human heart. New possibilities are among us in the ordinary. Something as ordinary as a wedding in a small village called Cana in the region of Galilee. But if, if we are to see it, if you and I are to experience it, to be opened up to it, then we must hear the words of Mary, who said, do whatever he tells you. May it be so. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.